How we doing today? Good. Can I get some lights on our people here? It'd be great to see them. Right now I can just see some blurs. Uh, and so just some sort of light would be great. Uh, my name is Justin Craig. I'm the executive minister here at the church. And uh, today is the second week in our series called For the Sake of Others. If you missed us last week, no problem. Let me catch you up to speed. Last week we were in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, talking about the story of Jesus healing the widow's son. There's a processional coming out of the town, and Jesus meets this processional of grief. He sees the woman. He has compassion on her, and he heals her son. And last week, we talked about how because of Jesus, we too need to be looking at life through the lens of compassion. And so this week, as we continue our series for the sake of others, we're going to be in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14. So if you guys have your scriptures, go ahead, turn there. If you didn't bring them, no problem. We got it up here on the screen for you. Mark chapter 14 is where we're going to set up camp for today. Mark 14, starting in verse 32. This is a familiar passage to us, especially this time of year, uh, but let's dive in together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Today, I want to talk about the gift of self-forgetfulness. I want to talk about the gift of self-forgetfulness. Has anybody here ever received a bad gift? No, no reason to nudge the person next to you, but anybody ever received a bad gift? Anybody ever been the giver of a bad gift? I have. Uh, let me just be clear. And some of the worst gifts I've ever given have been given to my wife. Uh, and so it's just ironic that... She still loves me. Uh, when we were in college, we were dating. We started dating in high school. Aw. Yeah, there you go. Right? We started dating in high school. We went to college together, and she was always complaining that her feet were cold. And so I'm like, locking that away because I'm a good person. 
you know, where it's safe. And so I decide I'm going to find something that will warm her feet. So I go to Walmart, and they have, like, the giant slippers. And I'm like, money, this is great, right? Like, I'm going to get her these giant bear slippers for Christmas. That's a bad gift. Um, And so I bring them back, and I, here, I got you this for Christmas. And she goes, oh, bear slippers. If they repeat the name of the gift, it's not a good gift. Oh, bear slippers, where did you get these? Do you have the receipt? Are they still open? Like, it's like, oh, great. Now, our first year married, our first Christmas married. Oh, I should have learned. Uh, Didn't get her slippers this time, but I decided that, you know, money was a little tight. I was working at a pizza place. You don't need a college degree to work at a pizza place, but I had one anyway. And, uh, I'm, I'm there, and I'm just like, oh, what can I get? Stephanie, we promised not to get each other really big gifts, and so I went for the smallest gift I could find. I got her a Gwen Stefani CD. Yeah, right? And it's like, does she like Gwen Stefani? I don't know, um, but it's cheap, and I got it, and just some really bad gifts. Now, there's the opposite side of that where have you ever received a really good gift? Have, have you ever given a really good gift where at Christmas time you're like, hey, mom, just open that. You can throw the rest of these away because I win. I win Christmas with this gift. And, you know, she unwraps it. Oh, she cries. It's a good sign. It's like, yay. But there's this, there's this, there's this idea of like having a really good gift for someone and giving it to them. You can't wait for them to open it. The same way when you're receiving a really good gift, it's almost not enough to say thank you over and over and over again. They have to see you wearing the shirt 60 out of the next 61 times. They see you. You have to be using what they have bought you. And and you think this is a really good gift because you can see the thoughtfulness. You, You can see the care and the love, the attention to detail. They were in a store and they thought of you. Someone has thought of you. You see, this gift of self-forgetfulness is a really good gift that Jesus gives to us through God's will that we see in our scripture this morning. This, This gift is a gift that Jesus gives to us, and we get to receive that gift. And just like we talked about last week with compassion, it's not just a gift that we get to receive, we get to reciprocate it out. Now, when we say the gift of self-forgetfulness, we're not talking about neglecting our needs or necessities. We're not talking about constantly trying to pour into someone else with an empty glass. We're not talking about neglecting our time with the Lord, neglecting time in his word, or neglecting time in prayer. We're not talking about neglecting our need to refresh. We're not talking about neglecting sleep or becoming workaholics. The gift of self-forgetfulness is about neglecting and starving the sinful desires inside each of us that hinder our ability to serve God and serve others. The gift of self-forgetfulness, as Tim Keller says, is not thinking more of myself. It is not thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. So we're not talking about neglecting the self, but neglecting the sin in the self. And then being able to offer what we have to where God wants us to be 
and what God wants us to do. As we think through this gift of self-forgetfulness, think with me Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul does not say to neglect yourself. He says to humble yourself. Here in our scripture this morning, we have a very human picture of Jesus walking through this struggle of humbling himself to the point of being able to offer himself as the gift of self-forgetfulness. You see, our scene opens with the disciples already in the garden, but they have made a journey now. The disciples minus Judas, because Jesus told him to go do what he was going to do. Jesus and the disciples, they make their way out of the upper room and start this journey to the Mount of Olives. And Mark's gospel tells us that this is where the interaction between Jesus and Peter takes place. And I've got to imagine... You know, it's just my mind, you know, I'm like a big kid. I just imagine the scene playing out of Jesus leading out in front of everyone and Peter like running up to him like, hey, so you know how you said back there that everybody was going to leave you? Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick right by your side. And Jesus goes, listen, Peter, not only are you going to uh, depart from me, but you are going to deny me before the rooster crows. And then they approach the garden of Gethsemane, and most Bible scholars believe that Jesus would have known the owner of the garden, and that would have been a place where he had gone frequently to spend time in prayer. Jesus leaves the eight at the gate of the garden and invites in Peter, James, and John with him. Jesus begins to feel the weight of sin and the absence of the Father and says to the three, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus then proceeds farther into the garden and falls on the ground in anguish and begins to pray that the hour might pass from him. Then we get to verse 36, which is the pinnacle of this story where we see Jesus' humanity and divinity play out as he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will will. Jesus returns to his disciples. He finds them sleeping. He singles out Peter because a few moments ago, Peter was like, dude, I'm not going to leave you. And Jesus is like, you can't even stay awake. See, the fatigue of the disciples is the beginning of Jesus' loneliness to the cross. Jesus goes away twice more with the same prayer and returns to the same sleeping disciples. And then Judas and the Roman soldiers show up and come into the scene. This prayer, this prayer of Jesus is where Jesus expresses intense desire to avoid the upcoming suffering, but he also expresses his acknowledgement of God's control of all things and his willingness to submit to the will of God no matter what his own desires might be. This is the gift of self-forgetfulness. Jesus' greatest desire, which is on display here from the garden to the cross, is to surrender to God's will no matter the cost to himself. 
This brings us to our big idea for today. If we get anything out of our passage today, if we get anything out of Jesus' prayer today, it's this. When surrender becomes our posture, our wants will concede to God's will. When surrender becomes our posture, our wants will concede to God's will. When surrender becomes our posture, when it becomes our attitude, when it becomes our position, our wants and our desires, hopes and our dreams, they will concede to what God is calling us to do. They will concede to God's wants and God's desires and God's hopes and God's calling on our lives. There are three transformational, life-changing pivots that happen when we practice the surrendered life that Jesus displays for us here in our passage this morning. First, a surrendered life transforms our will into our willingness. A surrendered life transforms our will into our willingness. Verses 33 and 34 says, And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Mark's gospel uses three words to describe Jesus' state of mind and soul here. He uses the words greatly distressed, troubled, and very sorrowful. Now Jesus is beginning to feel the weight of the sin of humanity on his mind, on his heart, and through his physical body. These three words are similarly translated in the Greek with a range of meaning from depressed to full of anguish, overwhelmed, alarmed, dreadful, Surrounded by sorrow. These words give us a slight glimpse into what Jesus is going through in his mind as he approaches the looming task of the cross. To put this into perspective, right, think, think about your sin, think about our sin, right? The sin in our lives can take us to a very shameful, embarrassing place as we process through them, right? Maybe I'm alone in that. But Jesus has the sins of the entire world, not one individual, but the sins of the entire world. And not only is the transfer of sin taking place, but the beginning of the absence of God. Jesus has never felt this before. So, of course, his human will and desire is to avoid the suffering. We get to hear this desire in verse 36 when he asks God to remove this cup from me. Now, this, this reference for cup comes from Isaiah 51, 22, which means not only suffering, but a cup of God's wrath as well. Jesus doesn't stop the prayer there. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will his prayer continues with the contrasting word, yet. It's a tiny little word in the middle of our passage here, in the middle of verse 36, but it's got significant meaning. 
Jesus is experiencing this awful feeling of isolation and loneliness, of burden and heaviness as the cup of suffering and wrath is approaching him. But his plea with God does not stop with his human desire. It ends with God's plan. This word yet indicates a change of thought, a change of heart. In this one little word, we see the mindset of Jesus shift from his human will to his obedient willingness. I think a lot of the time, our will takes priority over our willingness of obedience to God. Our wants and our desires and our will, they tend to scream louder than the rest of our lives, and we end up paying attention to them. But here's the thing. If we are constantly spending time trying to satisfy our will, selfishness will end up becoming a core part of our lives. And selfishness is the quickest way to step away from what God wants for us. This is a transformational pivot. This this transformation from my will to my willingness to follow God's will takes place when I recognize that God is God, I am not, and the very best place for me to be is in his hands. This this spoken word of yet indicates Jesus' surrender to God's plan where he embraces his true identity. And the same surrender of will is where we too can embrace our true identity as ambassadors of Christ. To be for his mission. To be for his will. To be for his people. To be for the sake of others. A surrendered life transforms our will into a willingness to follow God wherever he leads. Second, a surrendered life exchanges our control for God's control. You knew we were talking about surrender, right? So you're like, yeah, no control is coming up at some point. Verses 35 and 36 says, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels all record Jesus' posture here as being face down, which is symbolic of distress and surrender. See, Jesus, with the weight of the world's sins, the beginning feelings of loneliness and the guilt and shame that go along with sin. In all of this, he collapses. The word fell means to literally collapse on the ground. And instead of Jesus seeking physical sleep like the disciples do, he knows that the spiritual battle that is upcoming is far greater than the physical battle. So he doesn't seek physical sleep. He seeks spiritual rest. Maybe that's the word you needed to come to hear today. Maybe you're like, I don't know why I'm so burdened. I'm getting eight hours of sleep. I'm eating right. I'm exercising. I'm doing everything I can. Maybe we're missing the spiritual rest part where we spend time with the Father. Because in anything in life, the spiritual battle will always be greater than the physical one. 
His prayer is of honesty and submission. It's of humanity and humility. It's of transparency and trust. This is the point of the prayer where Jesus states that his earthly and human will is going to concede to God's divine rescue plan for the world. When Jesus says, not my will, he is submitting to God's will, to God's plan, and to God's design. He's surrendering his assumptions of another way out. He's surrendering his desires of another way. And he's surrendering his control of the situation and committing what he has left to the will of God. Jesus is acknowledging his humanity and submitting to God's divinity. Because God's will is better than ours. And God's story is bigger than us. Jesus is giving up the control that he has over the situation and committing his life to the Father's plan. Now, I would assume here today that some of us in the room have a little bit of a control issue. We could probably start a focus group, but because it wasn't your idea, you wouldn't attend, right? I mean, can I get an amen? No? Just me. If we're honest with ourselves, we love control because having control makes us feel like we're in charge. And if we're in charge, then then we feel like any situation is going to work out best for us. This, This is why we have a hard time with the word surrender, because it means that we are letting go. Maybe you're like me, and you want God to lead you. You're like, God, lead me. Lead me, God. Lead me wherever you want. But also, I want to know where we're going. What's the next step? How we will get there? Why are we stopping here? You want me to go and do what? Maybe, maybe you're like me and you want God to care for you. You're like, God, just care for me. Care for me in the ways that I see fit. Where you're like, God, God, I appreciate that provision, but that's not what we discussed. Surrender is extremely difficult because in surrender is where we let go of control. Maybe you've encountered many situations in your life that are really out of your control. Your company is letting people go. The diagnosis is not what you anticipated. The divorce was not on your plate. See, when life becomes out of our control, and surrender becomes inevitable, it has the ability to draw out of us a greater trust and commitment to God's control. When we're forced into that situation, there's nowhere else to turn. So our commitment to God becomes even deeper, going, well, I got nothing to do here, but I know he does. See, then then we become committed to him, We become committed to his plan and his will and his love and his people and his church and his way to his desire. We become committed to the calling that he has on our lives. You see, surrender is not just something we say on Sunday with our lips, but it's how we live the rest of the week. 
Surrender is not a one-time decision, but an everyday intentional, mindful choice to no longer live for my will and my control, but to live for God's will. Surrendering control takes a heart that is surrendered to God. Paul writes in Romans 12, which we referenced last week as well, he says that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect, but a lot of the time we are not living or praying or surrendering like that's true. Surrendered life lives and prays and hopes and gives and laughs and cries and rejoices because God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Finally, a surrendered life releases our preferences for God's purposes. A surrendered life releases our preferences for God's purposes. Verse 36, I know you've heard this a few times, but this is really important. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. If he doesn't finish the prayer with the last line of surrender, if Jesus doesn't drink the cup of suffering and wrath, if Jesus wrapped the prayer, left the garden, then our eternal destinies would have been left hanging in the balance. Yet not what I will, but what you will should be one of the most important verses in all of Scripture because this is the verse where we see Jesus release his earthly preferences for God's divine purposes. And the progression of Scripture here is quite interesting and extremely difficult. Right? Jesus feels an intense burden which leads him to prayer. Not Facebook, but prayer. He feels this intense burden, and in his prayer, he acknowledges God's limitlessness first. And so his acknowledgement then leads to a request. However, his dedication to God leads him past this request and into a willingness and submission and surrender. Then his surrender to God's will leads him to sacrifice, and Jesus' sacrifice is what fulfills God's purpose. What is God's divine purpose for Christ? Luke 19 tells us that God's purpose for Christ is to seek and to save the lost, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sins, to save us into his presence. I'm so glad Jesus finished the prayer. surrendered life means that we give ourselves up to God and his calling for our lives. A surrendered life means that we can pray selfish prayers as long as in the end we are satisfied with his will. A surrendered life means that we can let go of control because God's hands are much more faithful than ours. God's plan is much better than ours and God's timing is always perfect. A surrendered life means that we place ourselves in the hands of the Father, church family, there's no better place to be. A surrendered life is where control gets released, selfishness takes a seat, and our will becomes an afterthought. 
we get to be a part of God's divine plan. Does that ever just shock anybody else? That, that God sees the ugliest parts of our heart, the, the ugliest parts of our thoughts and our mind, the ugliest actions that we've ever committed in our life that we would tell no one about. God sees all of that and still wants to use us. That's love. We're going to talk about that next week, so come back. God loves you. God loves us. It's amazing to me that God uses me. You see, Jesus enters the garden with an intense desire to avoid the suffering that is coming, and he exits the garden with a greater desire to fulfill God's purpose for the sake of others through him. A surrendered life releases our preferences for God's purposes. The gift of self-forgetfulness has has very little to do about forgetting ourselves, but is about responding to the God-given calling on our lives. The the gift of self-forgetfulness, it's not about forgetting, but actually intentionally remembering, remembering who we are, whose we are, and what we are called to do and be. If we are ever going to be givers of the gift of self-forgetfulness, then we need to practice the three action points that Jesus displays for us here this, this morning. We need to pray like Jesus prays. We need to lay our burdens down before God, and we need to pray our burdens down before God. Prayer should never be our last resort. It should always be our first response. We need to pray like Jesus prays. We need to surrender like Jesus surrenders. This scripture allows us to lean into the humanity of Jesus and gives us a real picture of what willingness, submission, and surrender looks like. We need to follow Jesus' lead and surrender our thoughts, our hearts, and our lives to God the Father and for his will for us. Here's the thing, church. Surrender will always be difficult. Always. It will always be difficult. Don't hear that it's easy. Surrender will always be difficult, and it will always be necessary. We need to surrender like Jesus surrenders. We also need to live like Jesus lives. See, Jesus is not forced to the cross. It looks like that in a few pages. Jesus is not forced to the cross. There's no one in that crowd that could hold him down. Jesus is not forced to the cross. He chooses the cross because he chooses God's will. God's will is that Jesus would take the weight of our sin, the burden of our shame to the cross all for the sake of us, all for the sake of others. So that God's love might be on display for the world to see. Jesus gets our cross, and we get his empty tomb. All because he lived for the sake of others. The gift of self-forgetfulness is not about forgetting, but remembering who we are. Remembering whose we are. 
and remembering what we are called to do and be. And so my prayer for us today is that we would be givers of the gift of self-forgetfulness as we look at life and others through the lens of compassion. Let's pray.